Hello and welcome to the Eco Chamber, a podcast on the forefront of environmental policy brought to you by the investigative team of journalists at Ends Report. I'm James Adjapong Parsons. In this week's episode, we're covering an ENDS exclusive on Welsh Water's very murky sewage spill record, as well as the regulator's less than sterling attempts to address the company's permit breaches. From the sewers to Westminster, we'll also be discussing the latest energy and housing bills that have received royal assent. And finally, for this week's deep dive, we'll hear from Fish Legal's leader, Penny Gain, about their groundbreaking David and Goliath legal battles for our waterways and the natural environment. So let's get to it, folks, as we explore this week's Eco Welsh Water and Wales' environment regulator NRW are in hot waters this week following an ENDS exclusive that revealed the company has been investigated hundreds of times by the watchdog over their environmental permits. And yet, the company has faced minimal repercussions from Natural Resources Wales. To help me wade through the tide of the news today, I'm joined by ENDS Report's own Pippa Neal and Shosha Aidy. Shosha, can you give us a breakdown of the Welsh water numbers? So, since 2018... Welsh Water has been fined for just three environmental permit breaches, despite over 381 enforcement cases being launched against them. And that's according to Natural Resources Wales figures um, that were shared with ENDS. That equates to less than 1% of these enforcement cases that were investigated in the past five years actually resulting in a fine. So the regulator still has 22 cases ongoing against Welsh Water um, and we'll have to wait and see what comes of those. But pressure is really on for the regulator, particularly after news broke last week that the water company was illegally spilling sewage into protected areas for years. Um, And I think we addressed that on last week's podcast as well. Yep, do go back and listen to that episode, folks. But in the meantime, do we have any details about those three fines that we mentioned? So we do have details from two of them um, because we track these on the ENDS fines monitor. One fine of 49,000 was issued in 2019 and that was after a spill of lime slurry through a surface water drain at at a Welsh water treatments work near Swansea. And that actually saw um, quite a big fish kill um, at the River Clue. So a second fine of around £200,000 was issued in 2021 after a sewage release killed thousands of fish in the River And yeah, so the the two that you've listed, for any ENDS report subscribers, you can go access and interrogate the database for the ENDS fine, which is a fantastic resource. Um, Listeners, do go and check it out. What's Welsh Water and NRW said about all this, Pippa? So Welsh Water didn't really say much, um, but their, their comment just said that their teams work around the clock to ensure they provide a system our customers can rely on and which at the same time protects the environment. Um, and they did say that operating such a huge network means that issues will arise. And when this does happen, they say they aim to notify the regulator um, first. Um, the regulator will then fully investigate and take the appropriate enforcement actions and we always fully comply with any enforcement actions and agree timescales for completing any improvements needed. 
As for NRW, Mark Squire, who is a principal advisor of strategic projects at the Watchdog, told ENDS that they were challenging water companies to improve their performance. Um, and he highlighted that in a recent annual performance report for Welsh Water, the Watchdog actually downgraded them from a two-star company. And that's interesting, if, if, if folks are interested in that particular element of it, because I know when we spoke to Steve Ormerod, from who's the deputy chair of NRW on the board, he um, had an interesting point to make about that downgrading so yeah do check that out too yeah and mark squire also said he said that compliance and enforcement is an essential part of our toolkit to protect the environment and to prevent and minimize pollution Um, and he said that these enforcement undertakings can be instrumental in bringing business into compliance with environmental law and requirements and can change the behavior and improve practices of the offender And he said that they always prioritise cases for prosecution where they have clear evidence of a serious environmental impact and where their action will lead to a positive benefit to the environment. But are they prioritising prosecution, Shosha? So the figures that we were given did see um, six out of the 381 cases um, go sort of to a court case. There were fines listed for three of those six, as we've mentioned, and we have details about two of them. So, you know, as we mentioned before, that's around 1% um, of those enforcement cases seeing some kind of prosecution. I mean, the other side of it is we do have um, enforcement undertakings that can be carried out. I'd have to go back to the figures. No, so those are sort of the civil sanctions that a regulator can take against a an operator like Welsh Water. Exactly. And we know that there was one enforcement undertaking um, on our database that was taken against Welsh Water. I think it was around £50,000. So, yes, there's a lot of tools at their disposal, um, but it's just a question of whether they're always using them to the best effect. And it's not just about the regulator. To actually fix Wales's sewage problem, it's not going to be cheap, is it? No, it looks like it will be in the billions. Um, A new report that was prepared for the Welsh Government by Stantec, which is an engineering company, estimated the cost of eliminating all untreated sewage from being released from storm overflows into Welsh rivers could cost between £7 billion and £11.9 billion. So that's sort of if they went and did the whole shebang. Under the plan that Wales has put forward instead, which adopts more of a science-first approach, that's what they're calling it, those costs will drop to between £1.5 billion and £2.7 billion in capital over the period that this plan is for. So if you're a Welsh water customer, for example, and Welsh water cover, I think, around 98% of those sewage overflows, that would permanently add between £50 and £90 um, to your water bill spread over, I think... 80 years worth of improvements. And it shouldn't be understated the size of the problem for Dirk Henry, should it, Pippa, or Welsh Water? Yeah, so as Shosha said, they're responsible for 98% of all storm overflows, which equals around 2,000 um, individual storm overflows. So it's, it is a huge amount. But of that number, Stantec estimated that the average number of spills per overflow per year was between anywhere between 24 to 40 times depending on the different data sets used according to data from 2021 and 2022 so yeah it's a huge number of storm overflows that are releasing a lot of sewage and looking into those numbers i note that the 24 figure is based on their hydraulic models which actually represents the spills due to rainfall only rather than blockages or mechanical breakdowns 
Right, so we've got this report. What's going to happen next, Shosha? Going to sit on the shelf, gather dust, we'll forget about it? I guess we'll see. Um, I think the, the aim of it is really to be quite informative. So the Better River Quality Task Force have said that this is to give a series of evidence-based options for managing storm overflows in Wales um, and also to give a better idea about the level of investment that might be needed going forward. And, and who are the Better River Quality Task Force? Um, so they've basically been set up to oversee this improvement um, in storm overflows in the country. I think what was interesting in the report is that the Welsh Government was actually aiming to go ahead with this plan that was discovered to be the best option um, and it was found that it was actually more cost effective um, than Wales taking a similar approach to England. So there is going to be some sort of divergence in the way that we are doing things in England versus what's going on in Wales, which is interesting. And Stantec also produced that Water UK report we often quote, um, which estimates how much it will cost to stop illegal spills in England. It's considered quite controversial by campaigners, it's worth noting. From the runny sewage of Wales then to the funny politics of Westminster and news that two new acts have come to pass having received royal assent. I am of course talking about the new Leveling Up and Regeneration Act, the LURB, and the new Energy Act. Almost got you guys laughing on the LURB. Let's talk about energy first though and what the act means for all of us. Uh, Shosha, what do I need to know? So the Energy Act is quite a big deal um, because the last time we set out legislation like this was about 10 years ago when the world was in a very different place um, and particularly politics was in a different place on action on net zero and climate change. I know, in a completely different conservative green agenda. Definitely. And I think one of the biggest updates is that Ofgem must now consider net zero targets as part of its everyday decisions. So that's significant because the watchdog regulates gas and electricity networks and makes big decisions on price controls as well as enforcement action. Ofgem were also made the new regulator for heat networks in Great Britain, um, which is a pretty big government focus right now because they've set out a target of having 600,000 heat pump installations annually by 2028. And there's a lot of people on heat pumps. Yeah, well, they're quite expensive, I've heard. Um, so it's going to be a challenge, I think, making it affordable as well. But it's good that Ofgem, you know, will have new powers on that. They've also been given new legal powers as the economic regulator of carbon dioxide transport and storage. So they'll hopefully be able to deliver more um, on getting that carbon capture out of sci-fi and into reality. <laughs> yeah, I noted um, the new Energy Secretary, Claire Cotino. She was sort of gunning for 50,000 jobs or so coming out of that particular policy um, announcement. So Which would be huge. Be big. I yeah. Mean, big numbers. So the last thing to mention on that, because we could be here all day talking about the different measures in it, is they've made us the first country to legislate on nuclear fusion regulation, which is different to fission, um, and it basically would see the same amount of fuel, in theory, create around four times the amount of energy. But it's worth saying we're a long way off getting there, and the ambition is to see a prototype plant by 2040. Okay, 2040. I've got that date in my mind. Let's watch and see. I'm always dubious about fusion and... Boris Johnson used to love the idea, so um, got to be a bit sceptical. And there's reasons for that, and there's not a lot of money that's been poured into the research as well, which is a shame because, you know, we do need to be pioneering energy 
um, research. Let's hope the money goes with the policy. And alongside the Energy Act, which actually received royal assent on the same day, we had the Leveling Up Act. Have we levelled up, Pippa? Well, the government certainly thinks so. Um, So under the Act, we now have new environmental measures to replace the existing system of environmental impact assessments and strategic environmental assessments with environmental outcome reports, or EORs. My favourite acronym, EORs. Um, And we talked a bit about this last week, where we talked about some concerns that the Environment Watchdog, the Office for Environmental Protection had, kind of about these changes and, you know, whether these changes will go far enough. So if you want to hear more about that, uh, listen to last week's. Um, But we do know that the Secretary of State will now have the power to determine the outcomes relating to environmental protection and the power to require an EOR for a proposed relevant consent or proposed relevant plan. Um, The Act also does contain some environmental protection safeguards, including a proposed duty on the Secretary of State to ensure that the new EOR regime system does not reduce the overall level of environmental protection, Um, which sounds great, but I know that some green groups have expressed some scepticism about how effective this will be. Mm, I I heard the word overall. There's an overall things are going to be okay. Is that is that part of the problem? Yeah, so in a in a parliamentary briefing published by um, the coalition, the NGO coalition Wildlife and Countryside Link, they stated that the use of overall undermines the safeguard because it allows it potentially allows the Secretary of State to weaken individual protections as long as they consider this to be balanced out elsewhere to maintain overall levels. They said this risks trading off protection for individual sites and species in the hope of a wider in the hope of wider environmental improvements elsewhere, which they say may never transpire. But in its defence, the government did say at an early stage of the bill's drafting that the phrasing mirrored the provisions of the EU-UK Trade and Cooperation Agreement in 2020. Um, However, the provision doesn't mirror the Environment Act 2021's requirement that ministers state that new legislation will not reduce the level of environmental protection provided for by any existing environmental law. Okay, so that could be a gap for a legal challenge for some NGO or legal outfit. I mean, it is interesting because I I have spoken to consultants in the past and and especially when the big, big projects and at an enormous scale, you can be looking at an EIA report, which is sort of 10,000 pages plus of technical assessment. So I do understand that maybe that is a bit excessive. Um, and maybe, as as the OEP suggested, some of that information could be disseminated to other companies and 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 um, operators uh, without there being an unfair competitive disadvantage. Okay, I suppose before we move on, we need to know what the government has said in response to the Act's assent. So the government has said that by securing these powers to tailor environmental assessments it can better reflect the current pressures on the environment and help meet the nation's environmental priorities. Um, They also said that these new changes um, cut burdensome EU red tape, which is obviously a phrase we've heard a lot. Burdensome red tape (laughs) from the EU. It's all the EU's fault. Yeah, but, you know, as you said, with, you know, some of these reports are really complicated and the OEP did raise some concerns about this. So perhaps this is a a good thing rather than deregulation that we kind of talk about a lot. Um, It also added that the Department for Leveling Up will publish its response to its December consultation on the National Planning Policy Framework in due course. 
Um, and it said this will set up how planning policies in England are expected to be applied to help deliver the right homes in the right places. So what due course means, we don't know, but hopefully that's coming soon. And it's time now for our moment of the week, uh, which we will be doing a trick-or-treat spin-on, and it's the moment of next week. Confused? Don't worry. We are talking about the King's Speech, which will be given on the 7th of November, and I was hoping we might be able to tease out what we are expecting to see. Pippa and Shosha, trick-or-treat, what are you most looking forward to seeing or dreading to see in next week's speech? So I saw The Guardian reported that the speech is likely to contain some policies related to road transport, um, which they described as being, you know, further pro-motorist policies. Um, and it, they, they said that this could be restrictions on the ability for local authorities to introduce 20 mile per hour speed limits. So, yeah, if listeners can cast their minds back to the Uxbridge by-election, um, the ultra-low emission zone kind of became a huge political issue after that, where um, the Labour Party basically blamed their the Tories' win in the by-election on the Mayor of London's plans to expand the ULES. And kind of on the back of that, net zero, plans to downgrade net zero have kind of become a hot topic around the election with the Conservatives kind of using this to their so-called advantage. So I think it'll be really interesting to see if that transpires, if, you know, if that isn't mentioned in the speech um, and also exactly what that looks like. So I'm going to also have to go for trick because I, I was speaking to um, Charles Watson this week, who's founder and chairman of River Action UK, and he said he's feeling this deep sense of dread ahead of the speech. And I have to agree, I feel the same way. Um, he thinks there might be some provisions in there in terms of how we're going to go forward with water quality testing. Um, and the other one, you know, that we could see is some sort of mention of the nutrient neutrality requirements. I think um, that's been so up in the air since the government indicated, well, in the levelling up bill, that they would be trying to scrap them. And at the Conservative Party conference, um, which we do also talk about on the podcast, it was mentioned by the housing minister that they were pushing ahead with a bill that would see them scrapped. So I think more on the trick than the treat side. I do. This might be a controversial opinion, but I am I'm looking forward to seeing if they do ban tobacco um, for younger people yes. um, in the King's speech. I think that would actually be quite a positive development so if i have to throw a treat in there it's not environmental related <laughs> no no health health is important health is important I, I do think it's interesting as well you know that this government like at, at the moment is coming under so much scrutiny for its kind of plans to downgrade environmental policy and allegedly king charles is you know really pro environmental policy we've got yep. these new 50ps coming out with otters and puffins they look beautiful so it is interesting that his first it, uh, it is his first speak king speech is perhaps going to be one of the kind of most environmentally significant mm. royal speeches we've had in a while so just is quite an interesting tension i guess yeah yeah will he have to bite his tongue or can he um enjoy the things that he says we will see Time for our deep dive, quite literally, as I caught up with the head of practice at Fish Legal, Penny Gain, about the health of our rivers, the outfit's current legal battles and their momentous wins. 
not just for our thin-scaled ancestors, but for our rivers and the natural environment on which we all depend. In the past decade, their actions have led to changes in the law through legal action against governments, regulators and big industry. But before we spoke about the law of fish, I wanted to know, why should we care? It is a very good question, because um, we deal with anglers all day long, um, and uh, anglers are very passionate about fish. They love them. But yeah, they do. Um, but we often forget that they're, they're, fish are not, they're not cuddly, you know, they're not one of these species which are held up necessarily as the iconic species that we have to save. They're no um, panda. They're no panda. The and also the thing with a panda as well is that um, I think historically maybe some of the species that we've, we've, we've felt the need to conserve are ones which are not necessarily based in this country. So right. it's been problems that we've seen as environmental problems are problems which have been further away from our immediate location. But I think in lockdown, what happened is people started to reconnect with their local environment. And a lot of people were drawn to um, a piece of water, a river or a lake or somewhere where they could go to. Um, and then I, I think it, it gradually, as, as, as people reconnected and started to love their pieces of water near to where they were um they've gone away and then started to understand that all is not well much closer to home when it comes to our water environment so um i think the thing with fish is if you've got healthy fish populations it's usually a good sign that you've got a healthy river or a healthy lake and um you know fish they feed on invertebrates they you know the, if there's enough fish food there then you know the, the invertebrate life is healthy so you've usually got an indication that the water quality is is okay and there's plenty of water so they are a good indicator of a healthy freshwater environment so that's why everyone should care about fish we certainly care about fish i'd also say that there are some iconic fish freshwater fish in this country which um salmon the mighty um, salmon. The mighty salmon. Um, again, going back to this idea that I take for granted talking to people that um, they understand a lot more about um, fish species than they do. I was talking to somebody recently and it, it never occurred to me that people didn't understand that salmon migrate. Right. That they don't stay in our rivers, that they migrate out to sea, come back to where they were born to uh, breed. But it hadn't occurred to me that some people don't understand that um, some fish migrate, some don't um, so much. They might move up and down a river. But, um, yeah, I think as people start to learn more and more about fish, um, they can't help but start to care about whether or not the environment for fish is healthy or not. I mean, I think we have become complacent, but it's becoming a lot more obvious, probably with visual indicators, um, that all is not well in our water environment. I mean, you've got some very obvious examples of that now. You've got Windermere. England's largest freshwater lake. Yeah. Yeah. OK. Windermere, starting to see algal blooms. 
it's home to Arctic char. Now, Arctic char, it, that might not be what everyone is talking about with Windermere, but Arctic char, are um, they're a relatively rare species. They need deep, cold water. And we had our own case, which was similar to Windermere in Wales, in the Snowdonian National Park. Um, it was a lake called Limpadan, also had Arctic char. Same problems that you had sewage coming into the lake in different forms. So you sewage overflows, which lots of people know about now. Right, absolutely. <laughs> Much more understood that um, there are sewage, which, sewage discharges that are untreated that go into water. Less known that treated sewage can still cause a problem if it's discharged into uh, you know, the water environment. Um, Can I ask how? It, it depends what level of treatment right. and what kind of environment it's going into um, and whether or not you know, the, the works which are treating the sewage that is being received are able to do it to the standard which, um, which is sufficient to protect uh, the water before it discharges. But yeah, Windermere, algal blooms, clearly you've got an imbalance in this ecosystem there. And the same thing was happening on Klimperdon in that you had an imbalance which was causing algal blooms in what was a tourist hotspot, same as Windermere. Lots of people coming in, you'd have peaks of population. They're all using the sewage infrastructure on the banks. Um, but gradually in both cases you know it becomes clear that that um that human activity is having an impact on an environment which is home to you know a relatively rare species such as the arctic char and i think what is so interesting is this idea of public awareness yeah because we know the humans are creating the problems but also that we as a populace are becoming so much more aware of them yeah what listeners might not appreciate is actually Fish Legal was pretty instrumental in us finding out about discharges and CSO outfalls, what's being pumped out of them. Um, and this was your fight against Yorkshire Water and United Utilities back in 2015 and the right to information about private water companies' impact on the natural environment. Can you just take us through that case and kind of what came out of it? It's got a long history. <laughs> it sounds a bit it like David and Goliath. A, it sounds like a monumental battle. It was. Um, we definitely knew it was one that we had to fight, put it that way. Um, we already knew how important it was that we were successful in this piece of litigation that went on actually for six years. It, it ended in 2015, but it took six years for us to get to the point where we had a decision in our favour that water companies were covered by the environmental information regulations. But um, we absolutely knew that it would be vital both for our work, but also for um, anyone else, really, any member of the public who wants to understand the impact of water companies, um, both in terms of what they take out of our water environment, but also what they put in as well. So how it came about is um, these storm overflows at the time of privatisation, they realised that they, they, weren't, they didn't have consents. So what happened was um, this idea of deemed consents came in, that essentially discharges that would have been illegal overnight on the point of privatisation were legalised. 
there weren't any conditions. It was just essentially, it's legal for you to discharge from this particular outfall. Those consents with very no conditions existed for right up until it's about 2008. And um, the Environment Agency then, en masse, tried to introduce conditions to these overflows. Credit to them. That's a, yeah, is a good idea. And um, as part of the conditions they wanted to introduce, they wanted to get some sort of very basic limitation to protect the environment. Okay. So the water companies appealed... This. I'm sure they did. <laughs> they appealed the this this idea that en masse they should have conditions imposed on them for these sewage overflows. So um, that that case went to the planning inspector, who ultimately decided in favour of the water companies. So they had a much more watered down version of the conditions that were applied to these um, particular outfalls. But as part of that, we were a, we were a party to that um, to that particular appeal. Part of that. Well, we were asking because the water companies were saying, you know, there was very little information really about what is coming out of these overflows. Um, so we asked the question. We asked of all the water companies, you know, what what are you discharging? How often? Uh, essentially, how rely how reliant are you on these overflows for managing your network? Because there was it was just not understood. And what came back was, we don't have to tell you. We're private. We're private. We're a private company, and therefore you've got no right to this information. Because for for, the, for listeners who don't know what an EIR is, these environmental information regulations, they apply to public bodies or bodies acting in a public function. They do. So yeah, that's how it developed as a case. It went um, it went through the information tribunal, which is where you argue about um, information rights, and then it. It went off to Europe with a reference with some questions for um, the European Court um, to give some guidance on how our tribunal should be applying it. And it, it was essentially came down to two tests. Have the, have, they got, have the water companies got special powers or are they under the control of a public authority? And um, they found that they had special powers. They've got compulsory purchase. There's all sorts of things that water companies can do which make them different from a normal private company so um essentially they found in our favor um that they were covered and as a result anyone can make an information uh, environmental information request to a water company and they are obliged by law to respond i mean that it's just so um vital because these companies have such a big impact on our environment and because the public needs to understand that impact it's vital that they're able to ask those questions directly and be able to get whatever information they need to understand what you know what they're concerned about um, in terms of their impact on the environment did you know at the time the precedent that case would set if you won we did um but it it no one was interested (laughs) we knew yeah we knew but um it got very little coverage at the time and it really has only built momentum we were certainly using it immediately to find out all sorts of things directly from the water company which we either couldn't get from the environment agency because I, i their arguments were we give information to our regulators you can access it 
via them. But the Environment Agency doesn't necessarily ask for all the information, all of the modelling data, everything. There's a wealth of data about the operations that is held by water companies that would not necessarily be held by the Environment Agency. So, um, we yeah, we certainly knew the potential from our perspective about understanding either with a specific treatment works what kind of impact it's having on a specific river but um yeah more broadly we could see its potential but now you can see it is absolutely gained momentum and it has been that ability to get information from water companies has been crucial to revealing an awful lot of um the current information that you you can see um and the work the campaigners have been doing to expose the misuse and abuse around uh, and the over-reliance on storm overflows um, and putting sewage, untreated sewage into the environment. For sure. I mean, Pete, some folks might remember an interview we did with uh, Professor Pete Hammond, who's been instrumental in the uh, Windrush Against Sewage Pollution campaign group um, to really hold Thames Water and, and all of England's water companies um, to account with their CSO outflow data. Um and it also, it's worth noting that this has also shifted over to things like energy companies yeah. who now need to provide that same sort of environmental information if requested, yeah. um, all because of your case. All because of our case. We actually had a, a, another case involving E.ON. Yes. Yeah. Um, that was in the context of the Rampion wind farm down um, off the coast of Brighton. Yes. And um, we got into a similar spat with them. Um, because they they tried the same uh, playing the same card that we're a private company, um, and therefore aren't um, aren't obliged to respond to questions that we had asked about the the impact of the actual structures um, on the uh, on the fisheries just off offshore. But yeah, we we got a decision notice, and it wasn't quite such a big extended battle. We didn't have to battle for for six years, but yeah, ex- essentially extending the same principle to energy companies as well. I mean, I suppose for us, because we um, it's a tangent. There are some energy um, impacts that we have with rivers where there's a bit of a crossover. Um, so it has been a, less valuable to us, but we can see how other campaigners would, um, you know, access to information held by energy companies would be absolutely um, crucial for them understanding the impacts of, of, of these companies on the environments and uh, as well. So, And I know you've been using some of that information on a current case you've been working on, which is Costa Beck. Yeah. Now, um, this is a North Yorkshire river. There is ongoing legal action that you're taking. For our readers, what is the Costa Beck challenge? The Costa Beck challenge is really a water framework directive challenge. So you're right, we have a, we've got a case, we had a case um, in a hearing in the High Court in July and we're waiting for a judgment on that. We've essentially challenging um, both the government and the Environment Agency in this particular case. Um, and it's around the river basin management plan that relates to the Costa Beck. So just to give you a, an idea of the Costa Beck, to picture it, it's a spring-fed beck. So essentially, the water body that we're interested in, because it's not even the whole river, it's split into two different water bodies, I think. We're interested in the upper Costa Beck. So we've taken one small section and 
that gives it a relative simplicity in trying to understand, because we want it to understand, what has gone wrong with the river basin management process and why we are not in a better situation than we are when it comes to achieving good in terms of the targets under the Water Framework Directive. So that, very quickly, the River Basin Management Plan, what is that? Is that Environment Agency Improved Action to speed up the health of the river? What Can you just... Essentially, the, the Water Framework Directive and the regulations that transpose in this country, you're looking, it's a, been a long-term target for all water bodies to achieve good. They were supposed to do it by 2015. We've had kickbacks of the of the deadline uh, but really you're looking at 2027 at the time when all water bodies should be in good status so um this has been the driver it's a, it's it is the key bit of legislation when it comes to water it's driven all of the actions really around improvements understanding and improvements that you can make for water and for um, aquatic species okay so in the early parts of developing this every six years there's a river basin management plan so there's a cycle and in the early parts the authorities started off trying to understand what was wrong with a particular water body. There's over 4,000 water bodies in England, so it's quite a task and an awful lot of time and resources being put into, um, into this process and trying to achieve good by 2015, 2027. And that's good ecological and chemical health for It is, rivers. yeah. There's two, um, there's two different tests. But yeah, so it's, it's understanding what is wrong with a particular... Um, particular water body so it's the reasons for that going back to the cost of beck then um although you've probably seen an awful lot about sewage spills not all water bodies are failing because of sewage spills some of them are but not all of them are they at the cost of beck the environment agency has specifically linked sewage spills so intermittent spills from um pickering sewage treatment works to an impact on fish so you've got they've gone through the process of identifying um, what is wrong and what's being impacted okay so then what we would anticipate that they would do is come up with some ideas within the six year cycle of how you're going to fix that you've gone through the trouble of identifying what the problem is how are you going to fix it? And, and this is quite, there is, it's quite a big problem. I, I read that, you know, you're talking about hundreds of discharges every year from this particular wastewater treatment works that has been going on for, what was it, a decade or more? Two decades? Yeah, yeah. Um, there's definitely a problem with <laughs> sewage on the Costa Peck. Um, I mean, I think the theory around sewage overflows is that they would usually be discharging into a river which has got an awful lot of water in it because you're in a, a rainfall situation, you might have a spate river. But that's not the case with the Costa Beck. It is, as I say, spring-fed, it's relatively narrow, it's a small uh, beck, and it's just, yeah, is it appropriate to, to, to be having any 
intermittent spills into it. Um, clearly, the agency has made that link between the spills and the impact on uh, the ecology of the Beck. So then you have to come up with what you're going to do about it. Um, going back to fish, this particular Beck did used to um, be renowned for grayling. It had a particular type of fish called grayling, which are, um, they've got a beautiful um, multicoloured fin. I mean, they're very un unusual looking fish. Um, but yeah, it was, it, it used to have um, stocks of grayling and now it's just a, yeah, it's a shadow of its former self, let's say that. Um, I mean, our challenge is really, um, the nub of it is, the, the, there are permits which control pollution and um, we're saying that the Environment Agency, as part of the planning process, should have been reviewing um, the permits and um, updating them if necessary or enforcing um, against them if there are breaches. Um, that would be one thing that you could do to make some progress within the uh, the planning cycles um, because otherwise the river basin management plans just become a plan to fail which is not what they're supposed to be they are a plan to achieve good and if you are going to make any progress you've got to do something differently rather than just repeating what has come before and has not ha made any improvement even though that plan was signed off by our current environment secretary, Therese Coffey, last year. Exactly. We've, uh, we've, we're questioning the, up the section of the Humber River Basin Management Plan that, that relates to the Costa Beck. So it's been quite an education. <laughs> um, I mean, I think what we'd like to do, um, regardless of how the, the court finds us, I think we want to, I think we want to go out and... Um, and share with people what we found as part of this legal case. Because I think people are very interested in their local river um, and I think they want to understand what's wrong with it. And I think they, it, there are some very passionate campaigners, um, but we do want to help them direct their energies to dealing with the problems which... Um, which which are on their particular river and it may well be that sewage overflows are not a problem on a river that they are particularly have a particular connection with but we can help them um, find out exactly what the problems are on their river and what's being done about them it's, it's been quite difficult for us and we're you know we've been We've been in this game for a long time. Um, I've worked for the organisation for 16 years. It's been incredibly difficult for us to get behind the language of Water Framework Directive and River Basin Management Plans. It's very abstract as well. And I think what we want to do is help people to take that abstract language and, the, and, and to understand what information is behind it um, to... To, to come up with some concrete ways of, of making change, which is really what people want to do. You've got to the point where people care now, mm. maybe not about fish, but definitely about rivers. Um, they're really angry because they can see that, that the rivers are degraded and the water, lakes are degraded. Um, but it's about focusing so that they can actually make a difference, which they can do. 
absolutely you know campaigners can can make a dish and passionate people can make a difference but we'd like to help people understand you know and target target where they can make the make the most change where they can direct their efforts in concrete terms what happens if you win I don't think we even want to, to tell you the outcome. Is it bad luck? <laughs> yeah, it probably is. I don't want to jinx anything. Um, so, yeah, maybe let's leave it and see what the what the judge thinks of our arguments. Um, I suppose that's the nature of judicial review, isn't it? You're essentially challenging a decision by a public authority. And it may well be that you know technically legally um your 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 challenge fails but as i say what we've learned through this process has been it's been an education it's been illuminating it has shown us what's been going wrong even in very practical terms if even if you leave the law aside for one you know what we're legally obliged to do um under um the regulations which apply to your water bodies on a practical term, we can see now that there has been, um, it looks like a, um, you know, a resistance to regulate polluting industries and a preference for voluntary measures, um, which has meant that we just, we just haven't really made the progress that we could have done over a long period of time. Um, And as I say, you know, we can, we can share that learning because I think it is informative, really, um, because there are more plans coming coming out. <laughs> There's all sorts of plans, um, but you do need some concrete actions behind them if you're going to see any changes and improvements in the water environment. Over the years, have you seen certain patterns or problems in different areas of the country when it comes to the impact on fish and aquatic habitats? I certainly think now um, you're seeing more and more the impact of intensive food production. And um, so our office is based in Herefordshire. So we're right out on the Y. And I think you'd have have struggled to miss the problems that the Y's been having. And um, we are in... I think it's the chicken capital of Europe. <laughs> there's, a, a lot there's, of a lot, there's a lot of chickens in Herefordshire. And on the, um, it, it, the thing with the Y is it's a cross-border river, so right. in Wales as well. So starting right up at the top in the tri- tributaries. Um, there were algal blooms lower down in the Y. There have been historically, but to start to see algal blooms, which essentially is a very, again, a very visual... Um, representation that something is out of kilter, out of balance with the uh, with the water environment. To see those right the way up into the uh, tri- upper tributaries in Wales is, um, you know, that has been something that is developed in re- recently. Um, and that's this overloading of phosphate nutrient really encouraging that algae bloom. It is, um, and. There has been a proliferation of chickens um, in the catchment, and um, we've we've been looking at the problems of the why. We've got a couple of cases which have um, developed around it. 
we we've notified um, Natural Resources Wales under the Environmental Liability um, Damage Regs um, that there is environmental damage to the to the Y in Wales. Um, we've also we also challenged a particular development which was expanding, so more chickens in um, in the Y catchment. We challenged that on the basis that the the at the development stage we were saying that what happens to the manure of those generated by those extra chickens although it was being sent off site to an anaerobic digester that needed to be thought about where where is that going to be spread you know how is that how is that going to impact the um the why which is a special area of conservation you know it's a protected site that needs to be thought out at the planning stages we were unsuccessful in that challenge but again for us that that identified a gap that we can see between planning and permitting when it comes to how um you know how the waste is being dealt with with within the catchment um so again informative on 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 that basis um using our cases to highlight existing problems if you like even if they you know we haven't uh, we haven't necessarily been successful in the, in the challenge it's um they can often inform a, a wider campaign to protect um protect a particular site so we've talked about sewage pollution excess nutrient pollution are there any other major threats in the uk to fish or emerging threats that you know our listeners should be aware of I mean, I, th- I think I'd go back to food if if I would. I think Please. how we produce food in this country is something that we we need to really sit down and think about, because are we getting to the point where we are balancing up this idea about food production versus um, wildlife and nature? Where are we with that? You know, I I don't have the answers for it, but. It's quite specific anaerobic digesters, but I will talk about them because in terms of impact on fish, they we are very involved in anaerobic digestion pollution. So it's an it's a I don't know how old this is as technology, but this is industrial units in the countryside that can deal with excess chicken waste. And essentially for our listeners, it's about extracting the biomethane from the excrement. Um which can either then be used as a fertilizer, or if it's a, you know, can be sent directly into the grid if it's a biomethane. The concern that we have is digestate, and we've had cases where you've had catastrophic failure of the infrastructure, so you've had huge amounts of liquid digestate make their way into rivers, and the consequences of that is a fish kill right the way down the entire length of a river. You had that on the Tavy. Um, where you had salmon, you had sea trout, you've got dead fish right down the extent of the of the river. And is it tens, hundreds, thousands? You can you could wipe out the th- the thing is you can wipe out all different age ranges. You know, a whole population, um, yes, tens of thousands of fish can be killed in in one go. We've had that on the mole as well down in um, Devon. So we've we've had lots of um, examples of infrastructure 
failure, but also digestate getting into rivers during spreading operations. So there might be you've taken the digestate out of the actual tank, but um, then there's been a spillage or some sort of misconnection and it's ended up in the river. This digestate in terms of um, impact on fish is can be catastrophic but then you add into that this idea that if you're spreading digestate in areas which may already be saturated it may not be able the soil may not be able to cope with more nutrients more nutrients you can you can end up in a situation where you've got just a chronic situation of excess pollution getting into a river which then what just runs off when it's heavy rain or... exactly exactly seeping in so um it's i suppose our concern is we've we we have examples of gaps between planning and permitting we've got a site in um again in the y catchment which isn't it, it doesn't have full planning permission for all of its structures so you've got this massive industrial um, operation going on albeit that it's in the countryside but it's continuing to operate without having gone through the full planning process and got planning permission and I think in those circumstances we just we we're just amazed that there isn't a much more um, cautious approach given the risks to the environment um, that can be caused if you if you have either these catastrophic failures or um, just understanding how the digestate is being spread on the land. On food, I would love to ask you a question about aquaculture and in particular sort of the booming industry in Scotland. In your professional opinion, how much of a risk does big aquaculture present to our environment and our local fish populations? I don't think it would be in dispute it's, it's had a huge impact on rivers on the west coast of Scotland. We have a solicitor in Scotland who who deals purely with Scottish issues and obviously salmon farming is a big is a big issue in Scotland as you say. The problem with the positioning of the salmon farms and the nature of them um, because so many salmon are contained within a small space they have sea lice infestations and essentially what you've got is fish migrating past these pens the problem is that that salmon coming into a river um sea trout as well but they have to move past these pens which the interaction between salmon farmed salmon and wild salmon is very poorly regulated i think that's where our focus is because um where we've tried to put pressure is we we think there's planning it's same thing planning and regulators at the moment there is there's this we're in a period of transition where responsibilities for wild fish um and farmed fish interactions the impacts between the two is moving over into sepa sepa's um, That's the their responsibility, the equivalent, yeah, the equivalent in the Environment Agency in Scotland, the responsibilities moving over to them. But I think what we want to see is adaptive management. So when salmon levels get to a certain amount, then there needs to be some sort of management um, on the farm that is m- triggered by those levels. 
So with intensification, there are problems of sea lice. As I understand it, you've got a lot of problems to do with faeces and urine from these intensive farms. And you've also got problems with escapees and potentially genetic problems with mating with the wild salmon. Are those all things that SEPA need to get on top of? I think there's been a realisation that um, that somebody needs to take responsibility for those for the impacts of salmon farming out on wild fish, um, and that's where it's moving to in terms of those responsibilities sitting with SEPA. There is an economic problem here, isn't there? It's absolutely. It's intricately linked with the ec- economy. I'd go even like uh, out further because we're interested in the inshore as well and the depleted we're 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 at the moment looking uh, at the Clyde and the impact that more damaging fishing um, activity has on the inshore and there seems to be a preference towards industrial super efficient ways of producing food and it's not necessarily um, the case that equals more jobs but this assumption that um, salmon farming brings um, jobs and therefore is good for the Scottish economy, I don't think it's without challenge because the jobs that have been have been lost um, around the the loss of wild salmon is how you offset that whether they equal or opposite I don't know but um, if you're looking at it in economic terms yeah I'm not sure what the what the answer is but there's certainly there's certainly a bias there seems to be a bias towards those you know intense food production I have a final question for you you are now the fish czar of government you have complete control over policy what would you do in the first six months? I'd tell the environmental regulators to enforce the law. It's that simple. Not to use their discretion, not to be touchy-feely. I think um, I think our members, and I think a lot of the public, want um, regulators who are pretty tough and they have teeth and they... Really, not that interested in excuses for why somebody's polluting. I mean, we're not in a great situation um, with the health of our waters, and I wouldn't necessarily want to be in the regulator's position at the moment, but I think they have to, they just have to get tough because no one else can do it. I mean, we sue. We sue polluters directly, but we're not everywhere and we're not the regulator. And I think that's what I'd be telling um, if I was fish saw. I would be telling the regulators to get tough. In response to my conversation with Penny, a DEFRA spokesperson said, quote, our plan for water sets out more investment, stronger regulation and tougher enforcement to tackle pollution and clean up our waterways. We have recently confirmed that over 2.2 billion of new investment will be directed into vital infrastructure to improve water quality and secure future water supplies. We also have the strictest targets ever on water companies to reduce sewage discharges and are requiring them to deliver the largest infrastructure programme in their history. An estimated 60 billion in capital investment over the next 25 years, driving more improvements. 
they could not comment on the ongoing legal case with Fish Legal. And that's it. My thanks to Shosha AD, Pippa Neal and Penny Gain for coming on to this week's episode of The Eco Chamber. We'd really love to hear from you listeners with all your thoughts, your criticisms, your trick-or-treats by emailing us ecochamber at haymarket.com or using the hashtag ecochamber on all our socials. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and maybe even share it with a friend. Until the next time, take care.